Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's uh, good to be together in the Lord's house. You open your Bibles to Haggai, a little book in the back of the Old Testament, one of the last three books. We're going to be looking as we continue our series through the minor prophets, we'll be looking at this gem. This is an incredible book, and the relevance is, as you'll see, is off the charts. We tend to think of these books as irre- irrelevant to our life and not a lot of application, but you're going to find out that in this, certainly in this case, as in the others, there's a whole lot of application. So I want to read uh, chapter 1, and afterwards we'll ask God to teach us. Haggai chapter 1, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild a temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little when you bring it home. I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the, people of all the, rem- and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Our Father, we come this morning as we've sung about for one reason, that's for you. We're here to worship you. We long to hear from you. We long for you, God, to breathe in us revival, to open our ears so we could really hear you. Lord, to open our eyes, we could really see your hand at work around us. And Lord, by your spirit to open our hearts this morning, we'd receive all that you have for us. Stir within us, God. Stir within us a deeper desire for you. A greater longing for your heart. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Some time ago, I used to coach girls' high school softball in Stanley, Wisconsin. And uh, 
we actually practiced in a town, which is about seven miles away, and so often we kind of had to, to drive the kids back in the, church, in the school van. Or um, my case, I had this old uh, explorer, and so we filled it up with some of the, the girls, and we drive back. And, and, and one time, particular time, we're driving through town, and, and, uh, and as I'm driving, I see some people I know, and so I'm kind of giving them a little tip of the hat and, you know, pointing at them, hey, I see you and stuff like that. And the girl's are like, oh, coach, that's not how you cruise. I didn't even know I was cruising. I was just going down Main Street, but they're now informing me that there's a whole process of how you cruise Main Strip. So here we go. So, they, so we're going down this strip, and they're like, don't be obnoxious, because that's embarrassing. You never wave like that when you cruise, because you're, you're kind of hyper, and that's not cool. And I have a tendency to point and say, hey, I see you. you know, how are things going? They're like, don't do that. You shouldn't do that because that's kind of rude. So you can't point and don't get obnoxious. Say, what can you do then? Well, if your hands are in a wheel, you could do the farmer way, but even that's kind of old-fashioned. So you don't really want to do that. Now, I'm running out of options. I mean, should, do I even look at anybody now? And they're like, no, there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it. You kind of, kind of give the half hand like that. That was acceptable. And there was other way that if, if somebody was really close and you really knew them, that you could kind of, you could kind of go like that with like a, the humble wave. And so they're giving me all these acceptable ways to cruise. And what they were saying is, Coach, you need to consider how you cruise. You need to consider how you go down this road and consider how you greet people. Consider your ways. I didn't give that much consideration. i got to be honest. I uh, don't, didn't like their way of cruising, so I'd still do this. My kids drive them crazy. Still hyper when I wave. And, uh, and I would embarrass them, and I still embarrass my kids. And, uh, but the call was to consider what I did in Haggai's calls, to consider. Consider the way you're living. Consider your ways. And so as we do that, I want us to consider, first of all, some things. Let's consider the background because it's significant. The timing of it all. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, including Solomon's temple. And they took the Jews captive to the Babylon. The Jews were in captivity. You see kind of the reasons there in your outline. Look at Leviticus 25, Leviticus 26, and Jeremiah 25, 11. You'll kind of get the gist of what's going on here or why they're in captivity, and that's a whole different message. But I want you to try to envision a people displaced from their place of worship for their sense of identity. They're taken captive by the Babylonians to foreign soil. And it's there, they're held captive. Distance from all that they hold so dear. Jerusalem, God's city. The temple, the place where God uniquely dwelled among them. And by their own sin and their own rebellion, they're taken captive in Babylon. In complete foreign soil. What must they have felt? All them years now, 70 years we're told, they're taken captive. What must that have been like? Psalm 137, I'd like you to open to. I consider the one one of the most eloquently written psalms. It is ripe with emotion. And the context of this psalm is so important. These are the exiles in captive in Babylon. There they are, in the midst of their captivity, longing to come home. And listen to the emotion. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. 
For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Boy, you really hear the emotion, don't you? Of a people captive longing to go home, and, and there their captors are taunting them. Say, hey, sing one of them songs. How's that work for you? Come on, sing it. Sing about Zion. Sing about your God. And they go, how can we? Matter of fact, so distraught as they took the very instruments they used to praise God and hung them on the poplar trees. They couldn't even play them. That's this song. It's interesting, Don McLean, who wrote the song American Pie, if you remember that, which is about as long as this sermon will be, it went on and on and on, um, also sang a little-known song called Babylon, which is based upon this psalm. And it's interesting, in his concerts, he would actually have the audience sing along together with him. And it's kind of fitting, because this psalm we read is about a people together, unfortunately, who can't sing and find it hard to sing. And so it's in this context, it's these remnant that all of a sudden coming back to Jerusalem now, coming back to Zion, the place they long for, now they're coming back. And it's this prophet at this time who steps on the scene, Haggai, with now this remnant, there's like three waves that came back to Jerusalem. And this remnant is now who Haggai is addressing in Haggai 1. In Ezra 1, 1 through 3, in 538 B.C., we recognize that King Cyrus declared that the Jews could return to their homeland and they could rebuild their temple. And again, at, last, at least three waves took advantage of this. And the response to the degree was about 50,000 returned under the leadership of a new governor of Judah, Zerubbabel, and this high priest, which we read about. And the people settled in or near Jerusalem and began the restoration. Now, you have a chart in there of these post-exilic prophets, and you'll notice right where Haggai fits in the whole scheme of things. That's helpful to remember. Now, Haggai is one of the three last prophets in the Old Testament era. Three, at times, called the prophets of the Restoration. Zechariah, here Haggai, and Malachi. Malachi we'll look at down the road here. These prophets spoke to a whole different age. You see, gone was the glory of the former kingdom in the temple. That had been destroyed. Gone was the great population. All that was left was rubble of Jerusalem and a remnant of the people and a task of restoration. Now, verse 1 in historical books of the Old Testament, the writers usually dated events in reference to a king of Judah or Israel, but the Jews had no king right now. Now they're under the control of a Gentile ruler in the times of the Gentiles, the Bible refers it. And we read not just the timing of the background so important and so significant, so is the location of the people. Because we don't get very far into this book until we realize that Haggai is addressing a different period and a different audience. 
we're kind of used to this prophetic utterance, these prophetic warnings against the sinful, idolatrous people. But this prophecy comes to a people who are in the right place. And for the right reasons. And they had the right values at first. A problem arose, which we're going to look at. You see, it was a remnant's devotion to God and their zeal for his house that was the cause of the separation from the mass of their brethren. Remember, not all the Jews came back. It was this remnant who hungered and longed to come back and worship God. So they were the right people, and they were coming to the right place and to meet and at first for the right reasons. Often the prophetic books aren't addressing that type of people, but here it is. And so this prophecy is directed in that, uh, towards those type of people. These who came back, this remnant, were sensitive to God's promises to restore. They wanted to be in a place of blessing. And Haggai's purpose in this whole thing is to motivate the people to rebuild the temple, but also fulfill the secondary purpose. It was to motivate the people to address their misplaced priorities. Because in the fall of 536 B.C., they laid the foundation of the temple. But trouble came in the form of hostility, but Haggai points out another problem. And so let's consider that problem, verses 1 through 6. Work on the temple had ceased, in part to hostility, we know from other books in the Bible, but also to misplaced priorities. People turned to private affairs. They gradually began to worship God among the ruins. That seemed like that was enough. Gradually, they became used to worshiping in a way in which back in Babylon was not at all what they longed for. The desire to rebuild died out. And 16 years later, God sends Haggai with a message to challenge the people. Now consider this. When the remnant returned, they really had to address some things, didn't they? They had to find a place to live, how to make a living, establish a commerce, a community, perhaps school, perhaps trade. All those were valid and certainly necessary pursuits. But a problem comes. Verse 2, if you look at it, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people. I thought that was interesting. He doesn't say my people. He says this people. Why? It's a term of distancing. By way of example, if I go home to Cindy, my wife, and she says, do you know what your son did today? Odds are pretty good. I'm not going to be happy about what I'm about to hear. But if I come home and she says, do you know what our son did today? Odds are pretty good I'm going to be proud. What's the difference? Distancing. And that's kind of what's going on here. God says, this people who should be my people, this people aren't acting like my people. It's a term of distancing. Distancing from the way that's inappropriate. Distancing from a way that's not pleasing. Because this temple had been sitting empty for 16 years. It was an insult to God. Why was God so concerned about the temple? You see, the temple in Mount Zion on which it sat represented God's dwelling place on earth. The temple represented a place where God hung out among his people, you could say. When he met them for worship, it was unique. It was intimate. It was a temple where the glory of God dwelt. Taking his house lightly 
meant taking God lightly. Taking his house lightly meant taking worship lightly. People are saying, we, we'll get to finishing the temple. Don't worry, we'll get to it when the time is right. You see, God's not someone we make time for in our schedules. God is our schedule. And that's what they were facing. It was priorities. They had misplaced them. In verse 2 through 4, God gets right to the heart of the problem. Look at, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. This is what the people are saying. He was saying, if it's a time problem, then how come you got time to work on your own place? It wasn't just their own house. It was a paneled house. In other words, it's a little higher, higher level of a house. And so it, it's not a time problem, God says. It's a value problem. You got time, and so quit saying when there's time, because there is time. It's not a time issue. It's a value issue. By their actions, they were saying, God, we're building our houses instead of yours because we value ourselves, we value our comfort more, we, more than we value you and your glory. Does anyone not re- hear that say, whoa, that's a little too close to home? That hits close to home, doesn't it? I've heard people say, you know what, it's not time for me to be baptized. Or it's not time for me to tithe because, you know, I, I don't want my finances all organized. It's not time for me to get involved. And the issue isn't time. It's a value issue. We can so deceive ourselves into thinking it's time. God's given all of us 24 hours. If we needed 25, he'd give us 25. He's given us 24, didn't give us 23, gave us 24. It's not a time issue. It's what we do with those 24 hours. It's a value issue. And it certainly is true here. You see, misplaced priorities resulted in them, and it results in us, neglecting God. I think many want to know and do God's will, or at least it did at one time, maybe in high school or Campus Crusade or or some years ago, you remember a zealousness for God's will, but some things happened. Job, school, children, all important, valid things, significant things. But they became a higher priority than God, then that's a problem. What's the condition of your house? God would ask. What's the condition of his work in your house? What's the condition of God's work in our church? Those are the questions Haggai is getting to. Are we neglecting him? Are we neglecting the work he's given us to do? Matthew 6.33 Seek ye his kingdom and his righteousness. Now if you know that verse, you know I left the word out. Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness. God didn't say seek ye second. He said first. Why? It's a value issue, not a time issue. It's a value issue. In verse 4, he gets right to it. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses while this house lies desolate? These weren't shacks. These folks were building homes with central vacs, garage door openers, and manicured lawns. In other words, they're building some nice places. Panel houses. While God's house was laying in ruins. So the people reveal really how little they valued God by letting his house lie unfinished while they built their own house. God's house, his work, didn't matter much to them anymore. They had their own little kingdom they were operating in. You know what, to to really 
change our value system to to take those misplaced priorities and set them aside and kind of reorient our lives around what really matters, God and his call in our life, that sometimes can take some drastic action. It could, it could take some pretty significant steps, some steps that really hurt. Selling your house, quitting a second job. Those are hard things. But if we some, need to reorient our life around, around God, that might take some significant steps. And so when, I, when I'm saying this, I know sometimes it's not easy. It really is a challenge. And that's when we read later here, we'll talk about what God does to bring us back there. In verse 5 through 6, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God's saying, you haven't thought this through. You haven't looked how you've been treating me. You forgot what it, who, who it is who brought you back to this land. Haven't you noticed that nothing has satisfied your needs? You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. In other words, nothing has satisfied you. You neglected me, began to focus on yourself, and you're still not satisfied. It was a reminder to them. When you have misplaced priorities, ultimately they won't satisfy you. You haven't thought this through. Mark Kohler shared his testimony yesterday at a men's breakfast. Incredible testimony. And Mark hit on this in his life. That's one way God got his attention. He knew he was devaluing God in his life because of the emptiness he felt. And I'll let him share the rest of it. But it was a remarkable testimony and a challenging one to all of us who were there. So if you missed it, you missed it. You have to talk to him alone. He'll give you the one-on-one. And so his life and those who misplace their priorities is a life empty of satisfaction. But when our ways please the Lord, he gives satisfaction. There's an inner contentment. Even though it may not be where you want to be or standard of living you'd prefer, there's an inner satisfaction, inner contentment that God gives. Now look at verse 6. As you continue to go on, this remnant's experiencing unsatisfied lives. They eat, but they're not satisfied. Their clothes are not warm enough. In other words, they buy new clothes, the style changes, so they buy new ones. They earn money, but their purse has holes in it. They're never satisfied. And then verse 7, God says, hey, consider your ways. Reconsider what's going on here. Evaluate your life. Because all pursuits don't satisfy, especially the ones where there's never enough. So we compensate by working more. And when we work more, we don't have time for God's ways, the family God's called us to minister to. And I certainly can't think of another passage which so clearly describes this feverish, ineffective activity of our own age. Always rushing, always trying to get ahead, but always feeling behind, and we're still dissatisfied, and we wonder why. Haggai would say, certainly God says through Haggai, consider your ways. Consider the way you're living your life. Don't say when the time comes. Because it's not a time issue. It's a sign that there's misplaced priorities. And they won't satisfy. When you and I marginalize God in our lives and neglect his honor and glory, we bring upon ourselves consequences that the culture often even feels the effect. When will it be enough? When you get promoted? You get a raise? 
If you never get around to pleasing God, don't be shocked when you find yourself unsatisfied. When you and I neglect God and his work, we have a problem that money can't buy. We're in a situation that money can't buy our way out of because only God truly satisfies. Do you really believe that? You see, the problem that they're called to consider, that we're called to consider, is whether we're devaluing God by misplaced priorities. Well, what's the answer? Haggai gives it. Verse 7 through 15. Rebuild the temple, he says. Or, once again, make my presence your priority. Make my work your pursuit. That's what he's calling them to. Go up to the mountains, verse 8, bring wood, rebuild the temple. Why? I may be pleased with it and may be glorified. There's the motive, right up front. Rebuild a temple, for that is what would bring me pleasure. What he's saying is long for my presence again. Pursue my presence. Pursue what I've called you to do. That's what will please me. That's what will bring me glory. Verse 9 through 11 is a picture of God closing up the sky. It's a picture of God withholding blessing. There's no answered prayer. There's no power coming from heaven. This is a spiritual issue. A key issue. This is God's active role in blocking attempts to find life without him. When we try to find happiness in things, God won't let us. When our spiritual priorities get messed up, not only do we suffer, but unfortunately those around us will suffer. And the answer's clear. Make God's presence your highest priority. His work, your hardest pursuit. Intimacy with him, your number one priority. Activity for him, that would flow out of your intimacy with him. But how do we do this? How do we reprioritize our life in a life that might be totally out of whack right now? You may say, I want God's blessing. I want to do his work. Well, the text tells us how the remnant reordered their life, and it tells us how we can reorder our life. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the Joshua of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, did one thing first, obeyed the voice of the Lord. They started there. If you want to get your values back in, in the right direction, if you want to reorient them, you need to obey God, first and foremost. You can't disobey God and get your life back on track. You need to obey the voice of the Lord. Notice they understood the origin and the authority of the message. They understood where it was from. Obey the voice of of the Lord. It wasn't Haggai, it wasn't other people. This is ultimately the voice of God. They understood it. That was the issue, whether they're going to obey God or not. And that was their response. It was one of obedience. Because God gives another message to them. To those who would seek to be obedient, God says, I'm going to bless you. When you make me a priority, I'm going to bless you. But here's the challenge, is you and I need to hear the voice of the Lord. Where do we hear the voice of the Lord? It's in God's word. You and I can't reorder our life if we're not listening. You and I can't live a a life of, of great blessing and a life that has a great impact without being in his word, thus hearing the voice of the Lord. How many people, and I've used it the same, say, I don't have time for devotions. I don't have time to listen to God. It isn't a time issue, is it? We're back to this. It's a priority issue. We make time for what we value. We make time for what is important to us. And so don't deceive yourself into thinking it's a time issue. It's not. It's a value issue. 
Obey the voice of God. If you're not in the Word, it's an indicator you need to reprioritize your time with God. They started there. They obeyed the voice of the Lord. The second thing they do, we find at the end of verse 12, people showed reverence to God. Their God, they, avoid the, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. It's referring to a reverent worship of him. They took him seriously again. They made him a number one priority. They had reverence for him. There's a change of heart which preceded this acceptable worship. Their actions now responded to God in worship. Instead of neglecting him, they worshiped him. Something's unique about worship because it changes our face. It did in Moses' case, in those moments that you and I come, and I wish you could see yourself sometimes after you, if you know you've really engaged in worship, your face changes. But so does your focus. And that's significant. They had reverence to the Lord. Their focus changed. They see that in his presence, he truly satisfies. It's doubtful we learn this truth to the extent we do in worship. We sing and refocus our life. Now look at verse 13. Look at the promise. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Isn't that great? When they reprioritize their life, God says, now I'm with you. Now I'm going to bless you. Now my presence will go with you. It's a great promise. So the people respond to the word. They respond in worship. God's now working. God's working on their behalf. And my prayer is, and the prayer of Haggai here, is that God would stir every heart to make our hearts his highest priority or make his, him our highest priority, that his, his work would be our hardest pursuit. Now it's interesting because as you read verse 14, it doesn't say the people felt guilty. Because often guilt leads to resignation, a false guilt. But God stirred their heart. God did something within their heart that changed their desire. You see, when God stirs our heart, conviction is developed. And that's much different than a false guilt. And this conviction led to action. We're told in verse 14, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came to work on the house. It's the third thing we see happening. They, the people of God, they served together. They didn't isolate themselves. They came together. Maybe you could put your name. And they worked on the house of God together. They served together. It's interesting, this, this passage is written to a community, and we are a community of believers. There's something rich about when we serve together, and we certainly see that here. God bless that. You and I need the community of believers. And so when you and I enter the local church, it's not about they, it's about we. You and I make priority serving God. But let's consider your response. You see, God was just waiting to act on their behalf. But they had to get their priorities straight. They had to. He waits to act on your behalf. And when will you take steps to reprioritize your life? What steps do you need to take? How can you respond to Haggai's call to your life? Do you need to reorient your life around him and his word? Do you need to set aside some pursuits that are really cutting into your time 
of worship or your time with God? Are you forsaking sin? Are you prioritizing your own pursuits? Are you withholding your tithe or rebelling against the call to be baptized because you'll do it when you have time? What's God calling you to do? So consider your response. Haggai has spoken to us. And what is, what is God's spirit stirring within you? Could be more time in the Bible or some time in the Bible. Maybe it's you know that God's calling you to the significance and the need you have to meet with community. Here's a community group he's led you to, but you said far too often, I don't have the time. Maybe it's finding a place to serve in the ministry. Maybe it's tithing. Maybe it's giving. Maybe it's engaging in worship. Maybe it's committing to a a body ministry in some way. You haven't prioritized building up others. Maybe it's selling off some toys to free up God's money for God's work. Again, maybe it's like quitting a second job, or maybe it's pulling kids out of one or two extra activities. I don't know what it is in your life. But I do guarantee this, God calls all of us to reprioritize our life, to reorient it around Him in His ways, in the worship of who He is. Will you respond to God, or will you continue to live a dissatisfied life of chasing things? You see, it's your choice. I want to give you time to listen. Let God's Spirit continue to stir within you what He wants you to hear. Let's pray. If this morning God's Spirit is stirring within you, and you're hearing Him specifically, tell you something. You should write it down on your sermon outline. Don't forget it. Write it down. Because right now, nothing matters more than this moment right now between you and God. Nothing. He's spoken, and you're hearing. Now respond to it. In your heart right now, communicate with God. Recommit, repent, whatever is necessary right now for you to respond to what he's saying. Dear Lord, sometimes I feel like I'm in a foreign land, displaced, dispirited, struggling to keep first things first, and I know I'm not alone. And it seems, God, that this despair, this this weight that we tend to carry can be heavy. We tend to carry it far too long. And at times, God, it it gets so weighty and we get so out of whack that sometimes we just need to sit and cry. Because the tears remind us that cleansing is needed. And Lord, we got to confess there's times we feel like hanging up our hearts on the poplar trees. We don't feel songs like we used to. We find our ways down the road of misplaced priorities. 
we feel like hanging it all up. And God, we confess it's our misplaced priorities that we find us being torn. The joyful songs are no longer there. And may even feel the pressure of the joyful songs we're expected to sing. But we wonder, how can we sing? How can we sing songs where, while we're where we are? But God, your call this morning is that no matter where we're at, we can repent. That we can consider our ways and begin once again to reorient our life around you. God, give us the lyrics we need. God, give us the tune to go with them. Give us eyes to see where we valued things over you. And may your divine power enable us to put aside that which matters little so we may truly praise you, the one of supreme value. Stir within me, God. Stir within all of us a deep desire to live for you, to give you the praise that is due you, our great God and King. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.